0: Hi, this is George Folk, the new editor in chief of the Journal of Neurologic Physical Therapy. I am excited to welcome you to the first episode of the Journal of Neurologic Physical Therapy and special interest groups of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy author interviews. In these podcasts, ANPT SIG podcast teams talk with JNPT authors about their research, unique and unexpected findings, and how to translate these findings to clinical practice. In our first podcast, we are partnering with the Degenerative Diseases SIG to interview Dr. Amy York, who is on faculty in the physical therapy department at the University of Michigan at Flint, and Angie Ludwa, who is a physical therapist at Ascension Genesis Physical Therapy in Grand Blanc, Michigan. They will be discussing their article, Standardizing Outcome Assessment in Parkinson's Disease, a Knowledge Translation Project, which is published in the January issue of JNPt. Take it away, Parm.
1: Welcome to 4D, deep dive into degenerative diseases,
0: gaining insights through casual and amusing
2: clinical conversations.
0: Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Parm Paget a physical therapist, and I serve as secretary of the DD Sig. We are very excited to partner with the JNPT to bring you this author interview today. And we are here today with Amy York and Angie Ludwa. And thank you, George, for the introduction. And we're just going to get right into it. So we'll start by chatting um, with Amy. And Amy, give us a little bit of the background of... um, this study and and how you
1: conducted it. Yeah, thank you for this opportunity to speak about our project, which was really about partnering. So as a clinical researcher partnering with a clinic and looking at ways of how we could improve practice. So Angie and I have a relationship that goes back several years. I met her at a continuing education course regarding Parkinson's disease. And in the area, in our area in Michigan, Angie is recognized as a clinical expert in Parkinson's and runs several different community exercise programs. And after we attended this course, I actually reached out to her and said, you know, can I attend your exercise class? And so just started developing this relationship Between a clinician and somebody who teaches and who's a researcher. In 2017, the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy held their first knowledge translation summit, um, where myself and then two additional co authors, uh, Suzanne Trojanowski and Nora Fritz, attended as a team very intentionally to learn more about knowledge translation and the efforts that the Academy had regarding. Bridging the gap between what happens in research and what happens in practice and it's it's reported that it can take up to 17 years for research to be implemented into clinical practice. And that statistic makes me sad as a teacher to think that I am teaching content that may not be implemented for several years. As a clinician, it makes me sad to think that perhaps patients aren't able to get the most up-to-date information. And so that summit actually provided us as a team some tools to look for clinical partners that maybe would want to improve their clinical practice. So knowing I had this relationship with ENG, I reached out to Angie and started having this conversation because Angie is really a clinical expert in Parkinson's disease, was aware of the Parkinson's Disease Edge uh, documents, and was really always kind of searching to kind of improve practice. So, Angie, like thinking back to kind of those original conversations, what were kind of some of your thoughts as I approached you about this project?
2: Yeah, thanks, Amy. I was excited about the project. Being a therapist for over 20 years and really knowing a lot about Parkinson's, I had been doing a lot of the outcome measures myself, but knew that a lot of my co-workers were not doing the outcome measures I was doing. So I was excited because it was a good way to really um, I think, approach them and get their input. So we were kind of approach it as a team. How can we um, do more Parkinson's specific outcome measures um, and and provide more research-based skill to, to people with Parkinson. So I was super excited about it. Angie, give us a little bit of background on your clinic. Like
0: how many clinicians do you have there? What kind of populations do you see?
2: It's a relatively small clinic. It's an outpatient neuroclinic. So there are currently, actually, we have three physical therapists at this point. I'm a part-time physical therapist and two full-time PTs. We have two full-time OTs, three speech therapists, and two physical therapy assistants. So that's pretty much our team right now. And, and then the, the front office staff. The gym itself is actually pretty small, which um, came into play when we were deciding which outcome measures mm-hmm. we were gonna choose. So. Um, as far as like the physical barriers, um, that was something we had to talk about amongst the team. As far as what outcome measures were going to work for us, so that was really helpful when Amy came in because we could all sit together and say, well, for us as a team, what are the outcome measures that we feel we can implement and continue to do, you know, and forever, I guess. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and were there other clinics involved in this effort?
2: Yeah. Um, we're in the main neuro clinic, but there are several other outpatient ortho clinics associated with Ascension Genesis. And
1: so I guess how many, Amy, there was about... There were four clinics that were involved in the project in particular, because so the Grand Blank Clinic is probably, I would say, Angie said the central clinic that sees primarily neuro patients, but there's other clinics in other remote parts in the Flint area that a patient with Parkinson's might not wanna travel a half hour. So these clinics were closer to their home. And these clinics were commonly smaller clinics. Mm -hmm. Two of the clinics only had one physical therapist that was at that clinic, but that would still see somebody with Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. So the project included four clinics that included seven physical therapists and two occupational therapists. So tell me a little bit more about how this developed between you guys so
0: so you were chatting and angie sounds like you were looking to sort of increase the other the the number of clinicians that were doing the kinds of outcome Mm -hmm. measures you were doing uh, and how did you go about doing it with them
1: and then pulling in these other clinics one of the strategies that i think was really successful is we got angie's direct manager involved in this project relatively early And Ascension Genesis has been a clinic that really embraces evidence-based practice. And so getting his buy-in very early, really helped kind of set us up for success for the project. And we really just started out with some just general informational meetings, inviting all of the therapists that were involved in Parkinson's disease care to these introductory meetings saying, this is what we're talking about. And are you guys interested in participating?
0: So was it an opt-in for those clinicians?
2: Yeah, but it was highly recommended that they opt in (laughs) and I'll be honest, everyone wanted to opt in. Like there wasn't anyone that said, no, I'm not going to do that. So I think pretty fortunate, all the therapists I work with were all willing and excited about being part of the project.
0: Yeah, I mean, that the the rub, right, that you usually get, which is valid is that people are already feeling overwhelmed by the amount of documentation that they have to do. And so adding in another thing is is tricky. So so I hear what you're saying and I, you know, I agree. I think mm-hmm. that people often they want to improve their practice, but they don't want it to be burdensome or involve a lot of paperwork or checking tick marks that it might not work for that patient. So so let's talk a little bit more about the specifics about the outcome measures that you chose, how you chose them, and sort of what the parameters were to implement those outcome measures, like with who
1: and how often and stuff. One of the things that we're very sensitive to is we don't want knowledge translation to be equated with increased work, or that the researchers are coming in and telling the clinicians, you're doing this wrong, you need to do it this way. Knowledge translation is about partnering together in order to improve care. And so using the Parkinson's disease edge forms started out as the basis of these, these are the highly recommended measures. We also had a conversation of what constructs are most important for you to measure with your patients with Parkinson's disease. So we knew that we wanted both an upper extremity measure because OT was involved in the project, as well as making sure that we measured the constructs of balance and gait. So kind of through this process and through conversations and then through surveying the therapist, we knew that on average, they didn't want more than four measures that would be be required to be done on both initial evaluation and discharge and that they also wanted an upper extremity measure as well as balance and gait measures. So we utilized the Parkinson's disease edge as a way to kind of frame the survey and had people rank order what measures do you think are most important as well as what number do you think we want to do. So what was really nice about the survey when we did it is that There were five measures that came up. It was the mini best test. It was the nine hole peg test, five times sit to stand, 10 meter walk test, and the tug cognitive. Well, the tug cognitive is already included in the mini best test. And so we were able to exclude that. And through this really iterative process where we had conversations about it, surveys decided that the I know, so the Integrating Knowledge Translation Parkinson's Disease Project would include those four outcome measures that would be done on every patient admitted and discharged from physical therapy or occupational therapy on initial eval and discharge. And it didn't preclude therapists. Mm-hmm. It didn't stop a therapist from doing an ABC or maybe from doing a freezing of gate mm-hmm. questionnaire if freezing of gate was an issue but we really look to try to standardize the outcome measures across therapists, across settings in order to really mitigate that unwanted variability that happens. Because Angie, I think you would agree, you see patients come back over and over again.
2: Yes, yes, I do. I've been working at this particular site for five years. So I would say, once a year, I'm seeing the people, at least once a year, the people that have Parkinson's, I'll say, come back, you know, at least once a year. And so I use these set of outcome measures to really look back and say, where are you today? Where were you six months ago, a year ago? So that's been really nice. I was doing a lot of these outcome measures before, but not all of them. (laughs) So it has been nice for me as well, because you've kind of been able to hone in on like, these are the ones that are really important. I'm going to for sure hit these. But if I need to do a freezing of gait, I can do that. If I need to do a six minute walk test, I can do that. So it didn't, I didn't feel like I couldn't do anything else that was needed based on how the a person presented to me. That's for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. And what about patients that say, were not as mobile and like couldn't do something like the mini best test. Did you feel sort of
2: pressured for lack of a better word to still try to do it? Yeah, that's a good question. Cause that question came up quite a lot when we were having our meetings. I wouldn't say I felt pressured, but what happens is like I would get a, a patient that was m- maybe pretty low level and they couldn't do the mini best. So they would just score zero on a lot of those assessments. And so then I would pull out a different test or I would just use the tug or I I would try to do the Berg or something like that, that why I could get more of a, um, I guess, a score that I could actually do again to show some progress. But that was challenging. We talked about that a lot. Like, what do we do if we have someone who can't even do the five times sit to stand? Well, we decided as a group, as a team, that if they couldn't do the five times sit to stand, we were just gonna give them a zero just so that we were all consistent across the board. So we did, we gave them a zero, but mm-hmm. what I would do, and I think what a lot of the other clinicians did too, is I would make a note in my chart, okay, they couldn't do it without hands, what they could do with upper extremity support, here's what their time was. And then at least I had something in my chart to go back on and, and, and show progress in my note at least. So it wasn't that I felt mm-hmm. a burden to do any of the tests. Um, I, I, you know, it turned out I felt okay. Cause if they'd scored really poorly on the mini best, I just would do add another test to it. And it honestly, it didn't, right. I don't feel like it ate up a lot of my time, but again, I've been doing it for so long. So maybe it's because I'm more efficient with the outcome measures. You know, clinicians out there working in the neural world, the more you do the outcome measures, the more comfortable you get with them, the faster you get with them. And you can get a lot done in an hour. We have an hour to do evaluations and we can get a lot done in an hour. So how did it
0: go, this uh, trying to get these other clinicians on board and to implement this? What did you guys find?
1: One of the things that I felt was a success is that at first when we started meeting, the Grand Lake Clinic was kind of the central location where we would all meet. And what we did is we actually went to each of the clinics. And so we could see their own space. And we were very fortunate. We got a small grant from the Michigan Physical Therapy Association where we could purchase equipment. We purchased tape. We purchased timers. We purchased measuring things. We built inclines so that all the clinics had all the equipment in order to do this battery. And so I was fortunate to kind of be the deliverer of these gifts to these clinics, which I really think kind of helped build the relationship because it said I care enough about you that I will drive a half hour 45 minutes to your clinic. So that I can appreciate the challenges and the opportunities that you have at your specific clinic in order to execute these measures. And it's not perfect because at these smaller clinics, they don't see the number of patients that Angie sees at the Grand Blank Clinic. And so more frequent contact, I think, is something that they required versus Angie being at the Grand Blank Clinic really kind of served as something that we would call the knowledge broker. And I'll let Angie kind of talk about her role in that, that she was really the expertise. She was the boots on the ground that could kind of handle or manage any questions they had.
2: So if there were questions about how to do the mini best test or how to do the five times sit to stand, I think what we did, from what I remember, it's been a while. At lunchtime, we reviewed how everyone was going to do the five times sit to stand. We reviewed how how everyone was going to score the mini best test. So we were all consistent with that which was good cuz there were some discrepancies that we didn't know about we were doing with the, within the therapist so I answered those questions like that i tried to also encourage the therapist to do the test <laughs> so what i did is if there was a new patient coming in with a diagnosis of parkinson's disease at least the script said parkinson's disease I would have a piece of paper with all the outcome measures on it, just as a reminder, okay, this person has Parkinson's, you're gonna do these you know, four measures, five measures, um, just as a re- mental reminder, don't forget to do these, which I hope helped. <laughs> I think it helped a little bit. Um, yeah, and then if they had questions, about how to score. I mentioned that or or even like what I found afterwards Mm -hmm. is just treatment ideas, which was really kind of nice to see that they would come to me and say, Hey, you know, what do you think about this. So I could help them with some treatment ideas based on, you know, their outcome measures.
1: You know, one of the interesting things that we discovered is the role that administrative duties or the way that procedures are run at a clinic impacts what outcome measures. And so commonly at this clinic, patients with Parkinson's were consistently filling out the lower extremity functional scale Mm -hmm. because the sheet of paper was put into their chart. And so when the person came into the clinic, they filled that out. And so it's figuring out it, does this tool give you the information that you really want to with this patient? And can we remove that? And then perhaps think about you know, switching things out. I think the other thing is um, electronic medical record changes to ensure that therapists are cued to do those measures. And then on the flip side, that it makes it easy to audit that instead of like having to pull out an entire chart, you could run a quick report on did the therapist do these measures? When we did their chart audits, we had to look at the entire chart and pull out, do we see these measures? We also pulled out like how many measures were they doing? And on average, these therapists were doing like nine to 10 measures per session. And that number did not change much, but what changed was the type of measures they were doing. And consistently, they were more in line with evidence-based practice and with the edge recommendations.
0: You mentioned a patient-reported outcome measure. What about the ABC? Like, why were those folks not getting the ABC or PDQ-39 or something like that?
1: What's interesting, Parm, is that the ABC was frequently used prior to our project. And even though it was not included in the assessment battery, it consistently was utilized post as well. So particularly the ABC was utilized a lot. The PDQ was not utilized as much and just as a group they decided that 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 measure was not something that they were going to absolutely require but again a therapist could do it if he or she felt like they wanted to. But the ABC was a test that was consistently used before and after both kind of our intervention even though it was not included in the assessment battery because that was just something that as a group it wasn't it was decided that a patient recorded outcome measure wasn't necessarily a priority to include in the battery and whether that's right or wrong it was just kind of the way that everything happened and what the group had decided Mm -hmm.
0: so you so you sort of evaluated how these changes with a chart audit chart review type process correct How many charts
1: did you review? We reviewed 72 charts and complete it total. And so one of the, the things that I've thought about this project a lot is that as people read this article, they'll think, well, what's special about this, right? This is a hospital based outpatient clinic clinic set of clinics, right? Very common across their country that look to standardize practice, like that shouldn't be that hard. And I agree, it, it shouldn't be that hard, but to get therapists together to agree to change practice is not as easy as one would think. And so I do appreciate it when people might read this article and say, well, how did this get published? And I do think that knowledge translation is really the way of, is really important, or implementation science is really important, that if we're really going to look and changing practice, we need to have people working in this to get the clinicians to change their practice quicker than that 17 years. That 17 years is way too long for us to wait to change practice. And we do need researchers to be doing randomized controlled trials so we can have the evidence that creates clinical practice guidelines or, you know, helps us create the edge forms. And this project was done prior to the clinical practice guideline for neural outcome measures. And so one of our future projects is to look at the entire population that this system is looking at. So let's look at your patients with stroke and with MS and with Parkinson's disease. And can we have a standardized battery that goes across these patient diagnoses? And as we continue to work with a set of clinics of standardizing outcome measures. Now, can we start to look toward interventions? And now that we've got your outcome measures standardized, let's now start to look at interventions and seeing what kind of impact you're having on your on your patient outcomes because we've standardized your 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 outcome measures.
0: And so you mentioned that you know this the, this KT process is sort of this knowledge translation process is what. Is, is helping with this behavior change in clinicians. What do you think is the secret sauce? Like what is it about that knowledge translation process that is helping to make this transition faster? If you know, what do you think?
1: My gut is that the process is iterative and it allows for the adaptation of knowledge, meaning just because a clinical practice guideline says that this should be done, it allows for that knowledge to be adapted for that specific clinic. So Angie had brought up earlier that their clinic doesn't really allow a great setup for the six minute walk test. And so that perhaps might be a measurement that they're like, that's the one that we're just not gonna consistently do because our environment is not conducive to executing this test in a reliable and valid way. And knowledge translation and the knowledge to action cycle says that's okay. That's okay. We understand that sometimes the clinic environment is not going to allow a certain execution to happen. So it's like, how can it best be adapted that you can stay aligned with the evidence but not necessarily feel that you're handcuffed by the evidence that you must do everything in order to be that evidence-based practitioner.
0: Mm-hmm. I like that iterative process too, because I think the other thing that that does is it includes people in the decision-making and you know really helps to promote understanding of what's being done and why it's being done.
1: And Parm, I think another really important component of it is this idea that ideas should be generated as well from the clinicians and that should feed back up to the researchers. So one of the challenges with the battery that we selected is those patients that are lower functioning. Perhaps we don't have the right tools to gather information about their balance or their gait And perhaps as researchers, we need to continue to look at what are other tools or what things could we assess that might be able to capture those changes that happen in those lower functioning patients. So I do think that's another benefit of that knowledge to action cycle is that we implement evidence, but it is vitally important that the relationship goes both ways. It's not just bridging the gap between research and practice, but practice then driving research agendas so that important clinician questions are also getting answered.
0: Yeah, so like one of the questions I could see coming out of Angie's clinic is, so we, you know, because of environmental constraints, can't do the six minute walk test, but we know that the six minute walk test is one of the first uh, places that we can see deficits in people with Parkinson's disease early on. So what can we do? if we can't do the six minute walk test, you know, there's some other measure that can be developed that's comparable to the six minute walk test that really looks at the same kinds of um, constructs as the six minute walk test does. And that would be up to, up to Amy to sort of help figure out. I mean, One of the things I think is really cool about this is, is that relationship, right? So like Amy, you were talking about that two way street, but you know, one of the things, the backstory to this mm-hmm. podcast is that we first j- reached out to just Amy and Amy said, oh no, you've got to have Angie here too, right? Like having, I think that your relationship that's developed is is, is kind of cool and special. And I think a lot of clinicians would love to have that kind of access and I, you know, and and that kind of support. I think that that's, that's really great. And have you guys um, like talked about
1: other initiatives or other things outside of this project? Oh, we are knee-deep in projects. So we have been fortunate to um, receive grant funding from the Parkinson's Foundation looking at uh, community exercise programming. And one of the things that we were doing prior to COVID is um, actually doing measurements for our participants that would come to these community-based classes and doing almost a report card So like getting patients with Parkinson's to kind of know your numbers. So know how fast you're walking and take that to your movement disorder specialist. Mm -hmm. And so that's been this kind of side project um, that we've been doing and trying to continue in the midst of COVID. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's that's probably our biggest project else, wouldn't you say, Angie? Yeah, yeah. So
2: we have probably, I don't know, Amy, 60 to 80 participants that come between our that come to our ex- um, community-based exercise classes. So, trying to manage reassessments, you know, for all those participants has been challenging. <laughs> we were doing pretty good, and then mm-hmm. it kind of when COVID hit, we kind of <laughs> took a took a detour. <laughs> it's great that
0: you guys are moving forward in your pursuit of more projects and more ways to work together. And and we're all dealing with the COVID stuff right now and sort of trying to figure out how to adapt in this new environment, which hopefully won't last forever, but I think it's gonna be with us for a little while longer. Well, I think this is a very interesting paper. Um, you know, I think that people hopefully will read it and really clamp onto that knowledge to action framework. and and really view it as a uh, potential for the places that they work and, and look to collaborate with others. I think that collaboration was one of the nice highlights of this paper.
1: I would encourage clinicians to reach out to, to people in academia that perhaps are just, we want access to clinicians. We commonly want access to patients. And so it really can just be a beautiful win-win situation and and for me one of the important things is that we have a sustainable relationship that this is not a one and done that our relationship with angie and with ascension genesis continues for many years to come and that we are really able to build this partnership that really really just promotes this idea of improving care for the patients that are in the flint michigan area
0: yeah It's awesome. It's great to see you guys working together. Really fun. Um, So before we wrap up, uh, we, we here at the DD sig like to ask people what they do for fun when they're not working. So what do you guys like to do? Um, Angie, why don't we start with you?
2: I, I do like to run. So I run and I have three boys, 18, 16 and 10. So I'm extremely busy going to lacrosse tournaments. So I watch a lot of lacrosse.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that'll keep you busy. And Amy, how about you?
1: So I really hope people don't judge me on this, but I am a Bravo super fan and I watch a lot of Real Housewives, and so I really hope that people don't judge me too much on that, but I, I just want to be honest. I am a Bravo super. Fan. That's funny.
0: No, we, we love it. We love it all. We'd like to thank you both for joining us on this podcast. I think our listeners will get a lot out of it. Thanks for being here. Thank you for joining us for this collaborative podcast between the Sig and the Journal of Neurologic Physical Therapy. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast reflect those of the authors and interviewers and do not represent the Journal of Neurologic Physical Therapy or its editors. Special thank you to George Fulk, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Neurologic Physical Therapy. This podcast was produced and edited by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group podcast team. Our team includes Sarah Crandall, Katie McGraw, Adriana Carey, Mira Pierce, and I am Parm Padgett. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. And please share this episode with a colleague today. Thanks to Jimmy
2: McKay for providing music. Did you hear my dog barking in the background? I didn't. I didn't want to
0: be the one to say, "How come this got public?"
1: All right. So, anything glaring? On a side note, on a side note, Angie's twin is named Amy. <laughs> That's right. Spelled differently. That's right. That's right. Spelled differently, but she has a twin named Amy. <laughs> I do. People call
2: me Amy all the time, and I answer to it. I'm like, yeah, I'm Amy. <laughs> yeah.